When other people used to describe Mary Beth Wells, they would always use the same words, intense, energetic, strong, successful. But at this point in Mary Beth's life, they use different words, words like calm and grounded, and yes, definitely still successful, as Mary Beth owns two successful businesses, one a photography business for brands and another a life coaching business for women. So the path to this balanced version of Mary Beth passed through experiences that some people could spend a lifetime accumulating. Experiences like modeling at a very tender age, disordered eating, successful careers in emergency flight and tactical medicine, competitive fighting in a ring, and ultimately burnout. This is an episode about change. Change that Mary Beth says is right there within your grasp. In fact, Mary Beth makes a very convincing argument that the change we're looking for is not hidden in another article or podcast. It doesn't require more knowledge or tips or advice. And maybe it actually begins with blocking out all of that messaging. And maybe it begins with our approach to food. So just a heads up that this episode of I've mentioned does discuss disordered eating. Mary Beth brings up some scientific studies related to eating and even specific calorie counts at one point. Nevertheless, I think this is a really powerful episode. I will admit that Mary Beth really changed my mind and my thinking about some things. And I'm just excited for you guys to listen in. Here we go. Thank you for being here. And thank you to Mary Beth. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? Well. So have you been outside working today? Um, not outside working. I mean, I, I visit my garden every day. Of Do course. You? I go in every day that I'm home, I go and check on it. What's thriving right now? Tomatoes. Oh, are they? Yeah, I really overestimated the amount of tomatoes that I'm here. <laughs> My Grammy's old canning stuff is still in the garage. So, oh, that's yeah. really cool. That's it really is. nice. So, well, you already brought up your Grammy and that her stuff is in the garage. So, I really, really want to start with this because um, when you talk about a story and a storyline and crafting a story, like, wow, what a what an arc mm-hmm. that you're in this land that belonged to your grandparents. Yeah, it's definitely land and a house um, and the garage Mm. too and the garden Mm. uh, that's been in my family a long time and that I have so many memories associated with from Mm -hmm. almost every stage of my life, which is really interesting. Mm. So how big is it? Uh, So the land is just under 20 acres. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in central, central Virginia. It's near state parks. It's really lush and beautiful. Mm. Um, and the home is just like a, you know, regular brick home built in the sixties. It's nothing, nothing yeah. extravagant, but it's like beautiful. It has great bones. So a lot of what I have been doing since moving here, um, is kind of, you know, trying to appreciate all of the history that it has while mm-hmm. making it my own, which has mm-hmm. been an adventure in and of itself. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's a modest home on really a lot of land. Yeah. Yeah. A real richness (laughs) of land. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So most of it is like not, not logged. I mean, there's a fairly small lot that's big enough for, you know, big backyard, big front yard, a side yard, and then 
a large garden. My granddad was really into gardening mm-hmm. um, and had a borderline farm most of my life. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's room for that, but everything else is forest. Really yeah, <laughs> you're right. There's a fine line between a garden and a farm. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was too much to be just a little hobby garden. It, right, right. Yeah, there's a tractor. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's yeah, that's a um that's a good litmus test for where you are. It is. I have so many good memories here and I've always mm-hmm. felt at home here. So it was kind mm-hmm. of a natural decision. In fact, I used to call it home. So like mm-hmm. when I would visit my grandparents um and in between visits, if we talked on the phone, they would say, like, so when are you coming home? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a a natural thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think there's a lot of people that would love the idea of living yeah. on 20 acres, but the reality of it would be completely overwhelming to them. Yeah. It, and it still is very overwhelming to me mm-hmm. um, sometimes. And I've definitely had to readjust my expectations several mm-hmm. times since moving here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I, I am like a very intense, motivated person by nature. Mm-hmm. So my initial, I don't know, the initial way that I approached having all of this is of course like all right I'm gonna get it all done like yeah. this is the time I'm gonna give myself it'll all be landscaped it'll all look great right right I'm gonna like do all of this DIY stuff mm-hmm. um and like maybe it would be done if I were retired but I also have like, yes yeah I have like normal 20 something year old life things going yeah on you have a career to build yeah like a yeah. few so yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, I want to, um, I want to just like, I guess we've kind of, again, if you think about a story, we've kind of talked about the setting and that's super important to your story. I think, um, this land. And then I guess if we start to talk about the character, the character of Mary Beth Wells, <laughs> It relates to the land. It relates to, like you said, building multiple businesses. And I think anyone who sees you watches what you're doing and you try to be really authentic, I think, in the way that you present yourself, we would all describe you as, um, what did you say? Intense? Yeah. So so intense, I, I would say very strong. Um, yeah. physically strong, um, mentally strong, very energetic, like you said, very motivated. Um, so I want to know a little bit about those words. And I guess what I really want to know is it seems like these words, these traits, if you think they're accurate. So one, tell me <laughs> if you think they're accurate, but two, it seems like these traits are what have driven so many of the decisions and choices and paths that you've taken in your life. And I feel like most people would look at those words and be like, oh, if I could be strong and energetic and motivated, like those are things people search for. How do I get more energy? How do I get more motivation? Like, like I bet you, if you type that into Google, you would get dozens and dozens of results. And my sense for you is like where you are right now, those have been good in your life, but they've also maybe brought some of the harder lessons in your life also. So tell me that a little bit just about you as a person and 
those words and um, yeah. no, I those think traits. They're definitely, they're definitely accurate words. Not yeah. necessarily that I would describe myself as like if I were in an interview for a job. If right, asked, right. If you look at my life, like that is a, I can see where those descriptors would be. Right. And it's yeah. probably one of yeah. those things you hear back from people a lot. And you always think, well, I don't think of that myself that way, but somehow they keep popping up when other people describe you. Yeah. It's so interesting too, witnessing um, how people perceive me. Mm-hmm. It has actually changed quite a bit in the last, I would say four or five years. Mm. Um, so people never used to tell me that I was calm and grounded, mm. but in the last four or five years, the last two years, especially that is the most mm. frequent thing that people say back to me as mm. like a positive attribute or just feedback. I am not naturally like calm and grounded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. aspect of myself has very much been intentional work. Yeah. And in many ways, it has been not an opposite from being intense and energized, mm-hmm. but I think I think any trait, any part of our life in extreme, yeah. at some point, it is going to swing. It's like a pendulum. Like at some yeah. point, it is going to swing the opposite direction. That sound effect was perfect. <laughs> it's like you get to the height of the arc, there's a fault and you come back. <laughs> That was amazing. How did you do that? I should have turned off the messaging on my computer. No, that's totally fine. I love it. Well, when I was writing this question, I was thinking about that. Um, And I think it's not that we, it's not that we get to a point where we say, okay, now we need to downgrade these qualities in ourselves. It's that we want to keep them there. We want to keep them strong. um, But we want to build up a trait that will be like a good balance to it. So it's not so much um, diminishing any part of ourselves. It's like you said, cultivating again, to use like our our farming metaphor, like it's (laughs) it's cultivating this other part of yourself, this grounded part of yourself that will be a balance to the strength and the energy so that you can move forward, like in a more sustainable way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the balance that I have been cultivating, Mm -hmm. um, for the last set of years, because so much, so much of my childhood and my young adulthood, and even in my previous career, um, and pre-hospital and emergency medicine was just like really fiery. And like, there was no rest. There was no such thing as rest. It was almost frenetic. Yes. So Mm -hmm. I'm like proud to be a strong person who's capable Mm -hmm. of growing and is capable of being intense. Like that has taken me so many places. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it has like quite literally saved my life. I'm sure Mm. many times, Mm. Um, but there is a certain amount of that, that I think in our society is programmed uh, from a young age, or at least like in my, in my background, my family, yeah. A lot of that is just that like work has to look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of worth is found in work and productivity and like just overworking yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of what my life has been so far has been kind of a combination of these like innate abilities and passions and intenseness that I have. Yeah. Um. I don't know if that sentence made sense or not. Yeah, yeah, no, it did. It did. It did <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Of that, but also, I don't know, it feels like sometimes it was potentiated. Mm. 
uh, by the expectations and narratives of people outside of myself growing up and like in my teen years and my young adulthood. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that, about your childhood, you know, your grandparents, your mom living there, um, making zucchini pancakes, you know, what were your memories and, and what of those parts of you do you think came from your grandparents and your mom? Um, yeah. Or your ability now to quickly develop this balancing trait of groundedness? Like, did you see that modeled in your grandparents yeah, or your mom? I, I did not. You did not. <laughs> yeah. I had a feeling you were going to say that, Mary Beth. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I love my family. My family Mm -hmm. is very, and I say this for my immediate and Mm -hmm. my extended family. Yeah. Um, I come from a family that is like just very practical, Mm. which is not a bad thing. I don't say that Mm -hmm. in a negative way, Um, but we didn't really do like deep communication. We Mm -hmm. didn't really do a lot of like physical affection or open loving conversations or even conversations around like how to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So the discovery of tending to myself has been my own Mm -hmm. um, and came much later, but in childhood, you know, my relationship with food was really good. Mm -hmm. And I would say that nostalgically um, a lot of my creativity and my ease in the kitchen and my love for like meals that bring people together definitely did come from Mm. young childhood. Um, Mm. And I wasn't here in Virginia that often. I came up and visited every summer and stayed with my grandparents and it was just me and my grandparents. So Mm. my parents would like meet them halfway and kind of drop me off. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was here, it was always a really special time. And a lot of I don't think I thought about it at the time, but looking back, so many of the activities that we did were just completely revolved around food. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gardening to start with, right? Yeah. So you're cooking, you're automatically cooking and thinking about what you're harvesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So we always had an abundance of like tomatoes, zucchini, Um, part of what I use to decide what to plant this year was just thinking back to what always worked really well here when my Mm. granddad was gardening. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, we would just, yeah, because the soil doesn't change that quickly. Right. It doesn't like the climate doesn't change. that Right. 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 Tell me a little bit about your mom and her and her traits maybe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she, again, she got a lot from my Grammy and that she Mm -hmm. was, um, housewife. She was also a teacher. Um, Mm -hmm. So I was actually homeschooled. My mom was a teacher. My father was a librarian. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, an obvious choice for them to homeschool us. Yeah. Um, And the neighborhood that I grew up in was not a great neighborhood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the best choice for your education. Yeah. So that was the the decision. Like they looked at the schools that I would be going to and they decided to homeschool. Yeah. Um, Well, I guess I'm just curious about this. Like you had these independent times with grandparents, which is, I mean, that's basically as idyllic as it comes. And then you had so much one-on-one time with your mom. You had a great education and 
I, I don't think I'm putting words in your mouth. I think this is what you've expressed that you feel some of your traits that like took you so far, maybe, maybe got a little unbalanced at some point in your life, you know, this intensity and just this achieving nature that you had. And I guess I'm curious because I feel like a lot of times, a lot of times people try to say that that happens like for one of two reasons. One, like you're trying to prove something, you know, like you have to like every, every movie you're going to see about someone who gets to this point, like this breaking point that you had, you know, like they're either going to try to say that somebody was proving something. They had a parent they couldn't please or something. Or I think there's this aspect of it's like, it's almost an addiction, right? Like you're so good at, you know, for me, like I was very successful in school. And so being successful in school became part of my identity. So then I feared losing that part of my identity. So then a B became the worst thing that could happen to me, you know? And so <laughs> it's almost, it's almost like an addiction. I have been there too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was more the latter for me. Like you I were never... just chasing these positive feelings, the feedback, yeah. and you were just chasing it. Yeah, definitely. It's mm-hmm. a mixture of maybe being a little addicted to achievement and Mm -hmm. like even a specific type of achievement that's very intense. Like, Uh, like, like like something that not everybody could do. Very, very few people could do. Like working working on a helicopter, (laughs) fighting in a ring, like very specific, intense things that people are, you know, people look at the average person looks at and it's like, Whoa, how do you even do that? Yeah. Um, it yeah. became part of my identity to be the person who does that. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. all kinds of different ways. So yeah, I don't think it was ever really the first. I mean, my parents have always been supportive. My mm-hmm. grandparents um, have always been very supportive, but there was no specific pressure to do anything in particular. Got it. Okay. Um, which is great. But I it think, is, it, yeah. yeah, it's like it, it snowballed into narratives about myself that I held. Yeah. Um, there was of course a lot of ego tied into that. You know, one of the reasons that I, though I have had a successful and stable business for years now, Mm -hmm. I did not leave my career in medicine until less than a year ago. Yeah. Um, and that was ego. That was not like for financial reasons. It wasn't for logistic reasons. That was because I was so terrified to let go yeah. of the narrative that I had built for myself. When you're really good at something and when you're comfortable doing something and you're respected in doing something, yeah, it's super difficult to let go of. Especially something that not everybody can do. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it wasn't the first time you left something though. So I'd love to talk first, unless you think something else makes more sense about getting yeah. into and then back out of modeling. And yeah. I'm suspecting that that's where some of the um, positive messages and innate characteristics started to like really get tied up with some really mm. dangerous messaging. Maybe I'm wrong. Definitely. Yeah. I was super young when I modeled. Um, okay. I was 14. I had just turned 14, 14. when I began okay. modeling. So it's a very tender age. It is tender. Yes. Yeah. I'm very thankful for that time in my life. It was about one year. So it was a short chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it changed me mostly for the good. And that might mm. be contrary to what people, other people have like relayed about the modeling industry. Mm. Um, but it was not specifically the modeling, um, mm-hmm. but it was the ability to travel at a young age. Mm. 
Um, Since that age, I have just loved traveling. Yeah. So how did, how did you get into it? And um, I am curious if your parents were like, okay with you just traveling, like who was responsible for you? Yeah. So I still am not a hundred percent sure what they were thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I'm asking, I'm trying to ask this question with no judgment, really. Like I, so I do not personally um, want children or plan on having children, but if I had a 14 year old, like, I don't know that I would let them do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's really interesting. Uh, I think part of their, their decision and their rationale in letting me do that um, is that I have always been like strong in my own convictions. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I've never been like a follower. I think they found comfort in that if there was something that I did not want to do, I would not do it. um, Yeah. Whether or not they were around. So. And your experience with the profession was that you, I mean, I, a lot of people have relayed saying no to a lot of things, whether it's losing weight, whether it's sexual advances, whether it's, um, you know, jobs they're uncomfortable with, like saying no is just, it's not an option, no matter how strong you are. That was not your experience. I mean, I definitely said no to things, Yeah, Um, but I think a lot of it was who I surrounded myself with. I was Mm -hmm. very fortunate to make friends pretty early on that Mm -hmm. were basically like older brothers and sisters to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of my my oldest and closest friends to this day was one of my stylists when I was 14. Mm. Um, and he definitely <laughs> steered me in directions that were like better than the ones that I was going several times. Okay. Um, even just, you know, the people I was spending time with between gigs. Um, yeah even just when I had like the opportunity to drink, like all, all modeling gigs and like just the culture surrounding that, at least at the time, I don't know about now as much, Mm -hmm. Uh, but at the time it was very much centered around like smoking and drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had, you know, I didn't look 14. So like, might somebody have poured me a glass of champagne? Certainly. Yeah. Um, But he was like very adamant on making sure it was like, an apple juice or something. Yeah. Yeah. But the way that I got into modeling, um, um, I found out about kind of an open call. Um, and at the time I was really into fashion. Mm. I begged and begged my parents and they took me. And that day, um, I got signed to a contract. Wow. Yeah. So that was like March. And then by May that year, I was living in New York. Wow. Yeah. It was super fast and not with my parents. So there was like a model's apartment and then my parents dropped me off there. Okay. So how many models did you live with? They were all girls, I'm assuming. Yeah. So all girls. Um, And then we had, you know, like a house mother who kind of kept an eye on things. Okay. And how Um, old were all these girls? It just really varied. I was usually the youngest. Like it was still, even for the modeling industry, it was pretty young to be up there. So I would say most of them were, you know, between 16 and 24, probably. Wow. So you really did have people who could even legally drink that you were actually living with. Yes, I did. Wow. I also worked um, some internationally and I ended Mm -hmm. up spending, this was the first time that I went to India as well. Wow. Yeah. Which... Have you ever traveled to India? I've never been to India. 
It's beautiful. I highly recommend it. Um, It is, it's a very intense place and a very energetic place Mm -hmm. to travel. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, there's traffic, a lot of just senses, like all of your are kind of heightened and engaged. Yeah. Um, But that was my first, first experience. Yeah. It was my first international trip and it was my first experience in India. Um, And that was, I think maybe even out of all of the traveling and the experiences I had in that chapter of my life, that was maybe the most impactful. Okay. And um, and why was that? Because it just taught you that you loved to travel. Not even that. I would say that okay. it, it was just a different world. So it was, oh, okay. it was like truly the opposite from being a small town homeschooled mm. person. Mm-hmm. Uh, to it. I'm very grateful for it opening up mm-hmm. all of my senses and all of my perceptions at such mm-hmm. a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This idea of anything is possible. It's kind of like something you want for children, for them to look really not just children. There's a lot of adults who are stuck, right? Like yeah. this idea of like the possibilities are bigger and wider and more open than you can imagine. And somehow going to India yeah, gave you that message. It definitely did. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It opened me up to, to many possibilities. Um, and obviously I forgot that feeling along the way <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as one does, but it was definitely the first taste of like, Oh, there's so much out here. Yeah. There's so, so much out here. Yeah. So to go back, back before modeling, mm-hmm. you were very into fashion. Your mom and your grandmother didn't talk about diet or their weight or kind of hate how they looked. Did you think about yourself and your body and the fact that you were pretty and all of those things before? It almost sounds like you didn't get into modeling for that. You got into it for fashion. And then, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Tell me about that. And then, yeah, like once you were in it, I can't imagine that you didn't start to think all the time about your body at that point. I definitely did. Yeah. So, I mean, before, before modeling, before about 13 or 14 years old, I really never thought about my body in like a negative or positive way. Yeah. Obviously there are moments that I remember. Um, and I think most, most females in this society have those moments. Um, like the first time I ever was called fat, I was like eight years old. What? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. It was, uh, my soccer coach's daughter. I was always very athletic. So I was, I have always been like muscular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had had a couple of moments where I was like, am I fat? Um, before, before modeling, but modeling was definitely the first period in my life where food was ever demonized. Mm -hmm. Um, and where my body was like not enough. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, I'm curious if there was a transition. It sounds like as a child, your body was in your mind, it was meant to accomplish your goals, like whether it was to help your grandfather to pick something from the garden or if it was to, you know, score a soccer goal or do a backflip or whatever, like your body was doing what it was supposed to do. Right. And I'm wondering, um, there's this like line, I guess, like at some point you realize like your body was also 
I'm struggling to get this out because I feel like there's a positive and negative side to this coin. And I'm super curious about what you think is the positive, the negative, and how it flips. Because I think bodies are beautiful. I think they are meant to be beautiful. I think we're meant to feel and believe that they are beautiful. But then there's this line where they become ornamental. And that's maybe like a little bit of a gray area. And then there's this line where they are just like sexualized and objectified in a very a way that almost allows someone to have ownership over them without even being in them. Like there's kind of like this spectrum there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there definitely is. And I'm wondering, like, it seems like you hadn't even started on that spectrum. Like maybe you hadn't even realized that like a body was meant to be beautiful or could be beautiful before you started modeling. And I'm wondering how far down that spectrum you went as you modeled. And I'm also curious where you think the line is in terms of like what's healthy and not along that spectrum. Yeah. I mean, I would say I traveled along the whole spectrum while I was yeah. modeling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, how could I you not really like, yeah, be- yeah. because yeah. it's outside of your control. It is. And it was ultimately the reason that I left modeling. Mm. Um, so though the majority of my experiences were positive and I'm grateful for them, mm-hmm. it's also to this day, you know, the way that like food and diet and exercise and body image is approached in Mm. the modeling industry is not healthy. Mm. Um, And I think for me, the line between not healthy and healthy, obviously there are a million different opinions out there about it. But Mm. to me personally, anything that I do with my body and any expectations that I hold for my body that do not come from myself, Mm that is my line. So if it's an expectation Mm. of society, if it's an expectation of anybody else, Mm. um, then that is like, just not for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much of what we, so much of the pressure that we feel and we put on ourselves to look a certain way or weigh a certain amount um, or even eat a certain way is Mm. messaging coming from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Particularly in modeling particularly in modeling, but in general now, I mean, the whole, I know we'll get to this, but like the whole wellness industry has Mm -hmm. become just like self-optimization and has nothing to do with actually being well, Mm. not the whole wellness industry, but a lot of it. Um, Yeah. Go ahead and talk about that now. I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I will also say, I think it plays in because models have a little bit of a responsibility on them, right? In a way, because not only were you feeling all of that on your body, but then your body was actually being used mm-hmm. to place expectations on other women. Right. And it's important to note, like you were 14. Yeah. Which, I literally hadn't even finished hitting puberty yet. But yeah. Like, <laughs> like, and, and like, literally yeah. I bet your body was being used as an ideal for grown women. It was. This 100%. is like actually impossible. <laughs> yeah, this is important to know. This is like if you see somebody really impossibly lanky and skinny in a catalog or like on yeah. a runway, it's possible that they are 14. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, that was interesting. I don't know that I thought that deeply about it at 14. No, of course um, not. Yeah. I definitely... But I definitely got into a point during that year of my life where I just kind of felt like, so it's interesting. I actually have journals. Journaling has always been like one of the things that I have used for like self-awareness. Yeah. Um, 
that I read an entry a couple years back from that journal when I was moving. And it basically said, I feel like I'm just like a suitcase or a package being shipped around from place to place. Wow. Like, it's just like, it's not actually about me. So it's like just what's on the outside, just Mm -hmm. going from place to place and going through the motions. Yeah. So, and I mean, again, I'm thinking you were living with girls who were like 10 years older than you, women, women, right? Like they had developed, you were living with women. And um, how much of the conversation then did revolve around things that you had never talked about with your grandmother or your mother around your bodies, food, (laughs) thinness, comparing each other's bodies. Was that just nonstop? Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was pretty nonstop. And a lot of the girls that I met and some that I lived with were definitely um, on the spectrum of like eating disorder. Like there were definitely bulimic people that I like lived with and spent a lot of time with and anorexia was very prevalent. Um, I, so I've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I definitely during that time ate the least I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. Like it was not, it was not normal to eat big meals. I was once yelled at by an agent for eating a slice of pizza. Wow. Um, that is definitely, that's the norm. Um, and it's like a really unfortunate norm. Were you hungry? Yeah. Yeah. You were hungry most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is like so sad. If I could go back in time, I would just go cook 14 year old Mary Beth a great meal. (laughs) Um, you know, it was easy for me to exist in that world because again, I really hadn't fully hit puberty. So I was just like naturally really thin. Yeah. And you naturally have very above average self-control and self-discipline, right? Like you've done extreme yeah. sports, you've done the medicine, like you know how to deny yourself um, for an for a greater goal, which is a super positive trait. It is. It can be a yeah. really great trait. Yeah. yeah. But I definitely, I can use it for other things too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So that was definitely a portion of it. And then it's for interesting sure. when I went to India, that was towards the end of my modeling career. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that it was the end of my modeling career is because that was the first time the entire year that I allowed myself to indulge in just like really delicious food. Really? And it was and- Indian food. It was Indian food. It was mm. so good. It Do you remember so what you ate? Oh, just like all the bread, of course. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the naan and the roti. Like it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I spent some time in Goa, which mm-hmm. has had some like Portuguese influence over time. Okay. And it had a lot of really rich masalas <sighs> and just you know chai and yeah. During that point, I also had like nice hotel rooms to myself. Mm. Um, so I remember one specific time I just ordered like every dessert on the menu to my room and room service. Wow. And I didn't eat all of it. I didn't like binge it, but I yeah. just like, enjoyed and sampled everything. I was like, this is great. Yeah. So, and there was a direct connection between that experience and the end of your modeling career. There was, because when I came back, I had gone from a, an A cup to almost a D cup. Well, now that's not all masala. No, that's like hormones. Yeah. So that's like <laughs> yeah, it's not, not also masala. <laughs> no, it was like, I think my body 
Yeah. It was like the first time that my body had been properly nourished, which right. is really like kind of sad and scary to think about. Well, um, I am curious. I, this may be way too personal of a question. Did you, w- what was your cycle situation? Did you it was stop? Super irregular. Yeah. It was, so you were, so you, you were, you were like, you were basically, um, yeah, you were, you were um, delaying your own puberty. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's wild. It's amazing. Just what like nutrition can do. That Um, is amazing. And I have another question about this because you said you've never been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And I'm curious because, you know, again, there is a place for self-discipline. There's a place for saying, you know what, I'm going to, um, not eat that right now. I might eat it tomorrow because I'm going to be happy with that choice or whatever, because, you know, I'd rather, have this outcome than eat that right now. Um, what in your mind is the line between um, an average <laughs> or acceptable amount of like self-control and disordered eating? Mm, I think, and this might be really radical to some people, Yeah, um, but I'm at a point in my life and my belief system personally yeah. that Almost, almost all quote unquote self-control yeah. that is for a purpose related to eating is disordered eating. All, okay. Now, <laughs> I, I, I know that was like a loaded, a loaded sentence. No, and actually I think there's a lot of people that feel the way you do. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think, so if I can just like push back a little bit, my question, yeah. my question to you would be, is that um, like, I'm going to put out like a, like a extreme scenario, right? Like if someone didn't know how to cook like you do, if they didn't have access to what you have and all they wanted all the time was fast food, you would still feel like go for that. Not necessarily go for that. I mean, I think again, everybody's story is a little bit different as yeah. far as like what they have access to. It's very nuanced. Yes. Um, but I think ultimately most humans that have like connected intuitively with what they actually want to eat. Yeah. Um, that is outside of like just sheer emotion that is outside yeah. of, um, eating a certain way just to comfort themselves. Mm-hmm. Like I, most human beings, when they connect with like what their actual needs are, they're mm-hmm. not going to crave the same thing all the time. So when, yeah. it, when we come to this topic, this is actually part of your coaching, right? So you teach, you talk a lot about intuition and you teach women in particular to become more intuitive. Um, so about what? About their eating, their life, their work? Is it the same? What does that look like for you? It's definitely interrelated. Mm -hmm. Um, So intuitive life coaching to me encompasses intuition with eating, with movement Mm -hmm. uh, that most of us have become disconnected by because of diet culture, as we've mentioned before. Uh, But not only eating and movement, but also things like setting boundaries, setting routines, kind of the dispersal of their energy in general, and then even bigger picture things like their values, their intentions, their life purpose. Mm-hmm. And your your philosophy is that we all kind of have this gut instinct of knowing 
you know, what, what's good for us when we're hungry, what right. how we want to move yeah. our bodies. I mean, we, so much of this work is not anything magical that I'm bestowing on people. It's simply reconnecting them with, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of others, what we're born with, right? Like when we're kids, we know what we want to eat. We know how we want to play. We know how we want to exist in the world. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just reconnecting with that. Um, and then over time, as you reconnect with that, it can, it can become a really powerful tool mm -hmm. to also guide everything in life. I worked um, with a business coach who once said that she feels like her main job is to write a permission note. Yes. Do you yeah. feel like that's what I, you're giving women? Most definitely. Yeah. There's a permission note and the bulk of the permission note in most cases is giving women, people in general, the permission to trust themselves. Hmm. Um, that They do know what is best for them and then following through that. So typically when I work with people on intuition specifically, we start with just daily things such mm -hmm. as eating, such as movement, such as playing. Um, and those things are what help us use that intuition, you know, maybe for things like business, maybe for things mm -hmm. like big life decisions and what comes next. But mm -hmm. the magic always happens with slowly building self-trust. And this is how foundational you believe eating habits and yes. habits of movement are to life that you almost can't can't work with women on the bigger issues until they've established or connected, I guess I would, you would say connected mm -hmm. to their intuition in these other issues. Yeah. 100%. Because really that wow. daily, that daily connection and that foundation. Wow. So no matter who I work with, no matter what we're working through, you know, I do work with some women that have business goals. Like they mm -hmm. specifically seek me out because they want to achieve certain things. Mm -hmm. And before we even talk about those business goals, we look at their daily life. That is really, no pun intended here. That is really some food for thought. It is. That is how foundational food is. Yeah. You know? It affects, affects everything. And it can also be, you know, I know not everybody loves cooking like we do, mm -hmm. uh, but food can also be a really beautiful way to reconnect with something else that is really integral to uh, just joy and life enjoyment mm -hmm. and purpose. Mm -hmm. And that is like play. It's fun to play with your food, as you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I Well, I agree. And I think I, we, we may not be coming from the same um, sphere here and that's totally fine. But for me, it truly is a... Uh, it's a spiritual connection. Like it's an yeah. act of worship and gratitude for me to yeah. interact, you know, with these ingredients that I feel are a gift to us. So I, I do, yeah. I do actually agree with that. I yeah. really do. I don't think about food being that foundational, but I think I think I do agree. Good. Um, you know, you, you said you work with some women who have business goals. So if people are listening to this and they're like, that sounds really attractive. Tell me who your clients are. Why do they come to you? So I work with a really wide range of people. Um, but I will say that those that tend to be the most attracted to me, mostly because of my own background in medicine, my own background um, of being burnt out, to be quite honest, are women who are currently working through or have been burnt out. 
yeah, just women who have a lot going on. And usually when they get to me, they've tried many other things. So like I work with a lot of people who have been on all the diets, who have listened to and read and watched all the like self-care inspiration stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. they really want to embody living a certain way, Mm -hmm. but they've reached a point that they want support. And that's a beautiful place to be. Mm -hmm. I have been there myself. Mm -hmm. So if they've tried all these other diet ways, like, do you feel like you're kind of (sighs) giving them the secret to dieting? Are you, what would you say about that? I I feel like you already know my answer to this, but (laughs) dieting well does not exist. (laughs) And of course, like there's this wellness aspect too, right? Mm. There's like the term dieting and there's the term wellness Mm -hmm. Um, and within wellness and things like lifestyle changes and eating clean and all of that. I I was just going to say, nobody (laughs) wants to use the term diet anymore. Now the thing is um, don't, well, don't diet. It's not a diet. It's a lifestyle change. Right. And And I think you would even reject that term. It's a diet. Yeah. I guess the best way to put it, Mm -hmm. um, regardless of what term that you're using, Mm -hmm. anything that glorifies thinness and uses health, um, or at least appearing to be healthy as Mm -hmm. like kind of virtue signaling, moral Mm. virtue signaling, that is Mm. a diet. Mm -hmm. So when you, (laughs) we all, this is not just me, like I'm listening to you and I am like preoccupied as I listen with this desire to categorize you and categorize (laughs) your work and categorize your beliefs. And this is not just me. I think maybe more me than other people. Do you consider yourself a part of the wellness industry? And if not, do you consider yourself part of the life coaching and entrepreneurial industry? And I'm actually curious as like a marketer, how do you market yourself if you kind of refuse to be categorized? Yeah, I think, I mean, how I market myself varies on my audience. Mm. Um, and I think that's okay. But I would I would say that I'm a member of multiple communities. Mm-hmm. And that's so, mm-hmm. I would say yes and no to the, am I a part of the wellness community? Mm-hmm. The definition of wellness is a quality or state of being in good health. Mm. That sounds lovely. I think all of us should be in a state of good health. Mm-hmm. But a state of good health to me includes mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, mental well-being cannot coexist with diet culture. Mm. And the wellness industry overlaps too heavily with diet culture for you to 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 be comfortable sitting in there in Typically that category. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, again, there are lots of people who have similar trains of thought as me. And mm-hmm. there's always an evolution happening in any industry. Mm-hmm you know, the part of wellness culture that's about like clean eating and lifestyle changes and really Mm -hmm. glorifying thinness. I am not a part of that, but the part of wellness that is about community wellness and embodying, Mm -hmm. you know, daily practices that make you feel really good. Mm -hmm. That aspect of wellness, I'm very much a part of. Yeah. It's like you value wellness. That's Mm -hmm. one of your highest (laughs) values actually. Right. But you're not, you kind of, <laughs> you're taking a stand against the way the term has been co-opted. <laughs> yeah, no, it's most definitely been co-opted. Yeah. So, and I hope more people start to realize that there's this really, yeah, there's this really strong belief that I have that that 
that like true wellness cannot coexist with anything that negatively impacts mental well-being because that mm. is part of being part of being well like in the state of wellness if you're constantly stressed about what you're eating that's not being well on the same vein of following intuition each person that i work with mm-hmm. the work that we do together looks a little bit different the discussions mm-hmm. that we have are a little bit different based mm-hmm. on their own lived experiences mm-hmm. yeah so it sounds like you're saying that you believe dieting negatively affects your mental well-being and mental well-being always has to take priority. Do you agree with that statement? And then tell me a little bit about how you think dieting, especially in your own experience and in the experience of the women you've worked with, have negatively affected their or your mental well-being. Yeah, most definitely. So I, of course, agree with that statement. Not only do I agree with it, it's interesting There are lots of studies out there actually to get a little bit nerdy um, Mm. about the effects of hunger on the brain and not only hunger, but perceived hunger, which is what dieting gives us. So even if we are not in a state of lack for food, even if we're just self-limiting food Mm -hmm. and most of us who are like here today have experienced kind of the side effects of dieting. Um, And those side effects are like, you know, irritability, maybe headaches. Like what are some side effects you've had before when dieting? Uh, Well, paradoxically, yeah, no, I think paradoxically, actually, if I have gone too low, you actually want to move way less, which for me, that's hugely affected to mental health. I I really, really, really have to exercise every day, even if it's just moderate exercise, like a 45 minute walk or something. Yeah. And we need fuel to be able to do that. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely a lot of like fatigue, irritability, apathy, even depending Mm -hmm. on who you are and how it affects you. Um, And there's this study called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. To sum it up, it was a study that was done shortly after the end of World War II. So it was like November 1944. And it was essentially just under 40 quote unquote, normal, healthy men who agreed to do this experiment where basically they were starved um, for about a year to study the effects of starvation. And the purpose of that study isn't necessarily um, something we have to talk about. But Mm -hmm. what I find to be the kicker of this study is that the caloric intake that they were put on as a starvation is actually several hundred calories higher than what the standard diet caloric intake is. What was it? I don't know if I should say it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say it It was like 15 or so hundred calories. Wow. And that was starvation. That was a semi-starvation diet. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to read through. And in that study, the effects that were reported the symptoms verbatim that were reported mm-hmm. were fatigue, irritability, depression, apathy, lack of energy, you know, mental fog, all mm-hmm. of the things and more that coincide with what happens when people restrict their intake, even for dieting purposes now. I actually think it's significant to share that number because we don't think of typical dieting as starvation, but I I actually think there's quite a few women that consider a diet number to be like 1200. 
Like, right. I feel like okay. you see that number tossed around a lot. Now, obviously men and women, different caloric needs, but still it right. goes to show. Yeah. It goes to show that it really That's fascinating. It's super fascinating. And what's to me even more fascinating is the long-term effects of mm-hmm. that one year that all of the men had. Which is? Basically mental mental illnesses even and mental effects that they had never before suffered from. So like long-lasting depression, long-lasting just dissatisfaction and also things like binge eating. Like it made them binge more because they had been stuck in this state of restriction. Yeah, yeah. I think it is really interesting because we think when we when we think of dieting, we <laughs> we don't think of it as starvation. We think right. they're totally separate things. And they're not necessarily. They're not necessarily. So, so this is really fascinating to me. And it actually, it actually brings up this kind of third field. So, you know, we've talked about the diet industry, wellness industry. We've talked about your experiences in modeling. And now you've kind of brought up the field of medicine and studies and things like that. And obviously another huge place that people are getting messaging about food, wellness, health, and, you know, dieting restriction weight is from the medical field. So I'm, I'm curious, do you think that this field, the medical field is giving good advice? In the medical community too, it's like often more insidious because mm-hmm. most, like most physicians, most people, a lot of dietitians are not trained in intuitive eating. Um, mm-hmm. And they really they really do glorify thinness. So like, instead of considering all of the nuanced things that come with telling their patient to go on a diet, they just jump right to that. Um, and it's super damaging. And I always, (laughs) I don't know, I always assumed that, uh, I don't know, medicine would develop eventually into viewing things more holistically. Mm -hmm. Um, but somehow in most medicine, um, just if you go to like your average primary care physician or family, family doctor, mm-hmm. they actually have no, they have no clue about any of the stuff that we have talked about. Mm-hmm. Like they have no, um, no frame of reference and like, no, uh, I don't know how to word it, but no, yeah, they don't have a very um, global or holistic perspective. It's I, it, it's a number. You either yeah. are like are below or above the correct yeah. number. It's very interesting. Even in so in flight medicine, hmm. um, you have to weigh a certain amount to be able to fly in the helicopter. Now, does uh, that have to do with just physics? Yeah, basically. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, physics and like the amount of you know fuel that the aircraft has to have yeah. um, to fly you know, the average load with like all of the equipment and medications and things like that. Um, so as a flight paramedic, you do have to weigh yourself, um, with all of your gear on. So like your your flight suit, your helmet, your radio, um, at the beginning of the shift, just to tell them like how to adjust their fuel accordingly, the pilot. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. One of the last work meetings that I went to for the flight service that I worked at, um, I guess a lot of people that I work with were like on the edge of not meeting the weight requirement. Okay. Um, so instead of inviting somebody with like a holistic 
point of view to see, you know, what, what would actually be helpful to these people, my workplace, uh, and some of them might listen to this, who knows (laughs) my workplace invited in somebody from a weight loss clinic that was essentially, I don't know, they talked at us for an hour about like supplements and weight loss pills that are basically methamphetamines. Yeah. That's, that is so, that is so scary to me. And it's so funny you bring that up because I was just listening to a podcast earlier. Um, It's the podcast of a guest I had on last year. And um, one of the guests on there was saying that she had slightly high blood pressure Mm -hmm. and her doctor said, do you want weight loss pills? And I was, I was actually horrified by that. Yeah. That's super Um, common. Because again, it's this idea that the number, the lower number on the scale at any cost, right. what the heck are you doing to your body to artificially lose weight? I mean, a that's either that. a diuretic yeah. or yeah, you're essentially speeding up your metabolism in a way yeah. that can cause way, way, I'm shocked. I'm yeah. absolutely stunned that medical doctors are suggesting these things. Yeah, It's like then- suggesting Red Bull. Yeah, it's like that and and weight loss surgery. That is what they were basically suggesting. Um, and how sad to be in the healthcare industry. And that is the best that can be done for weight loss. Um, or like the regulation of how your body is existing should not revolve around weight loss. Um, yeah, yeah, like you should not be putting somebody's entire system in danger. Right. Yeah, it's super dangerous. I had another coworker. Really scary. And this was like totally anecdotal and random, but I had another coworker um, at the county service that I worked for prior to getting into flight and critical care medicine, and she had gone on weight loss medication um, for a couple of years, and it was several years past that, and she still had a resting heart rate that was like twenty to thirty beats per minute higher than it should have been. That really is terrifying. And it does show me why, because I'm thinking, surely you'll say there's some positive messages from the medical community, but <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of pretty sympathetic to you not saying that now. <laughs> and I think just like anything else, like there are definitely pockets of the medical Absolutely. Industry, right? yes. There are people that I, that I worked with that I still am friends with that sure. do not hold, you know. Of course. Yeah. But your point was, this was actually a weight loss clinic. And this yes. is what they were, this is like, this was their expertise. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. It was so, so terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. I don't, (laughs) I can't think of anything too profound from those four things that would, yeah, uh, (laughs) Yeah. it would be super good. Um, So, um, wow. Wow. So for a, for a person to have a, a healthy relationship with food, Mm. They kind of first have to have a healthy relationship with their body. Yeah, and with themselves. And with themselves. One of the first ways that I reconnected with my body was fighting. So again, that is is not for everybody. Yeah. (laughs) It actually came as kind of a necessity Mm. uh, towards the end of my most burnt out time in healthcare. Yeah. And I knew, I didn't know what I needed but I knew that I needed something yeah. just intuitively that was only for me. 
Yeah. Like it was not related to the medical field at all. Um, So at the time, my goal was to go to medical school. I actually have a pre-med degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just like very enveloped in that world and that narrative, like mm-hmm. the books that I read, the podcasts that I listened to. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah. I was just like living, breathing, eating medicine. Yeah. All of my friends were in the medical field. Everybody I dated was like somehow intertwined with that. Yeah. Um, so I knew that I needed something to just get me out of my head, number one, and back into my body and something that was like unrelated to any of the people or the things that I was already doing. Yeah. And this Um, is when you were also working in emergency medicine. I was, I was working a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was working. Um, so at this time I was on night shift, which is Mm -hmm. like a whole other, you know, you want to talk about like confusing the equilibrium of your body. Mm. Night shift is so hard. Mm. It's so hard. Like I would not wish that on anybody. Um, yeah. So I was on night shift, like 7P to 7A on the helicopter. Um, and then I was also still, I was still finishing my undergrad. So I was doing school credits and I was also still contracting for the county service that I worked for in tactical medicine. Mm. What is tactical Um, medicine? So it's basically a a medic or a doctor who works alongside the SWAT team and the bomb squad. Okay. Yeah. So you do the same training as them. You like, you meet up with them and do all of the physical training, all of the other qualifications. And then when they have like a call out for whatever it may be, you go along and you're in charge of like any injuries that happen. Yeah. And you have worked on some truly um, gruesome injuries. Right. Many, 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 many. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which also takes a toll on your mental health. It does. Yeah. And that's like a whole other. Yeah. That could be an entire podcast episode. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Truly it could be. Um, And at this time, you know, So I was doing that. I was working like a 12 hour shift and then I would go on a call out with a SWAT team and then I would do schoolwork. I would teach at a community college and their paramedic program. And I would sleep like two or three hours a day. Wow. Um, And I knew that that was not sustainable, but part of me was like just kind of toughing it out. I had gotten really accustomed to just toughing it out. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I was excelling. Like my grades were great. I, you know, was like well-respected in the places that I worked. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of screaming on the inside. Yeah. Um, and I was reaching a point. I didn't really know to label it as burnout at the time, mm-hmm. um, but I knew that I like needed something. So I don't even remember how I found this Muay Thai gym, mm. uh, but I decided again, it's like partially because I'm an intense person. Yeah. Who just try something. I yeah, like, I'm like, hey. some people would decide what they needed for themselves was a nap. <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> you were like, Oh, I need another intense activity. <laughs> yeah. I was like, let me just like physically beat my body. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I went to my first class and like, I knew nobody at the gym. It was kind of dirty and stinky. And there were like topless sweaty men everywhere. Um, and I definitely had a moment of like, what am I doing here? Like, yeah. This is not, 
this doesn't make sense. I was terrible at it. Of course, like anytime you try anything new, you're going to suck at it because you're not, <laughs> like you're, not born, you're not born a Muay Thai fighter. Um, yeah. There's always that moment of resistance. So like, yeah. Oh, yes. I the moment it. of resistance. Yes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So I, you know, and I'm very good at fighting past that. So, mm. mm-hmm. so I did, and I began going, you know, a couple of times a week and then almost every day. And then a couple of times a day, I became like relatively good at it to the point that my coach at the time was like, Hey, do you want to fight? Um, and I had never really, like, I didn't get into it with the intention of fighting. Yeah. I got into it for like, you know, a release of stress and something that was like, quite frankly, meditative. Yeah. Was that all tied up with the food and mental health um, and like not eating disorder, but borderline eating issues? Was that all tied up? Um, I mean, I would say, I think I thought it was. Ah. I was under the impression that it was. And you know what? It was really interesting to witness it reemerge when I had to cut weight for a fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to fight in the U.S., um, especially as a female, there just aren't that many options. Like not that yeah. many. Not, not, not so many, many weight classes. Yeah. Like not that many women fight. And then even in the fighting community, not that women, not that many women do Muay Thai. Yeah. Um, and then like on the East coast, not that many women do Muay Thai. Yeah. So it was like kind of slim pickings. And I had to, if I wanted to fight, um, cut weight to a specific weight class. Yeah. Um, and it was very interesting witnessing some of my old, like, self-limiting beliefs and thought patterns and narratives coming up that had not come up for me for many years. Since modeling? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was really like the first time in my adult life that I felt like such an immense pressure to, to weigh a certain amount. And it wasn't because of like the glorification of being thin necessarily, but it was like, it was based on a number. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you have to like, get to a certain number. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, it was interesting to, to witness that at the same time as like doing something I really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, but just being, I think it definitely made me aware that there's really no such thing as, as tying that up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's just like, it's within us and like the potential to obsess about weight and maybe not not like show up for ourselves in the way that we deserve, the potential for that is always there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just like the potential for, for showing up for ourselves is always there as well. There's right. like this kind of duality. Mm, yeah. And it feels like maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like everything just stopped at the same time. Like you were like, I'm just kind of done with all of this. And now I'm going to become grounded, Mary Beth. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think to a lot of the people in my life, even it has felt that way. Uh Uh-huh. But what's Uh, the reality? It's been not as sudden as it looks. You know, I think I had like these inner, these inner knowings Mm. and these, um, you know, I've always been relatively connected to my intuition at baseline. So I Mm -hmm. think like the more that I have honored that over the years and gotten to know myself, the harder it's been to ignore. Yeah. 
Um, so I think it's been less of like a sudden transformation and more of a like honoring myself. Yeah. It's almost like it was building inside of you for a long time. And then you finally decided, let me, let me acknowledge that. So it, it feels quickly to other people because you decided to, once you decided to acknowledge it, you acted quickly, but building to that point took a long time. Yeah. Which like doing it quickly is, is actually within it's like not a shock again. So yeah, think- that's, that's the, that's the, yeah. Yeah, that's the intense, motivated, overcoming resistance, not afraid of people, yeah. headstrong part of you. Like, well, I'm done. <laughs> I think people who have known me for a long time are like, oh, she completely changed her life again. That's fine. Yeah. Like, let me- <laughs> Let's see what she does in five more years. Um, but for the people who definitely, you know, who had not known me as long, um, it was definitely like a, kind of a 180, you know, Mm. I knew that I needed to make steps. Yeah. Um, and some of those steps were guided by mentors, Mm. um, which is like really, you know, I'm not, I know not everybody has a mentor, but it can be. Mm. And I think this is an interesting thing about you also, because, you know, you talk about being headstrong and intense and certainly determined, motivated, all of these things, Mm -hmm. but yet um, going way back to modeling, you were open, you were open to the wisdom of others, which is quite Mm -hmm. a remarkable trait, especially for a 14 year old. And one that has been like, there's so many times when I listen back to this conversation and I think back on it, that Mm -hmm. you were like, oh, there was a mentor. I had a therapist. I had a coach. I had a friend. Mm -hmm. You didn't need to listen to him when he said, don't drink, but you did. Like there's always been maybe a teachable part of you or an, uh, an open part that acknowledged Mm -hmm. the wisdom of others, um, which it's gotta be part of why you've kind of done all of these extreme things, but only until they got too extreme. And then you came back. (laughs) Like, it's like you went up to the brink and came back. (laughs) It definitely is. Yeah. I'm, I am always open to not only learning, but I'm Mm. open to, I'm really open to growth and change. Mm. Um, And open to doesn't mean it's easy for Mm -hmm. me. Because I think like, that's really nice to say, but as things are changing, it's still hard. Uh, yeah, but you're not, you don't give into the fear. You're not right. fearful of it. You acknowledge growth and change is a good, but difficult thing, a necessary, right. but difficult thing. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons is that I've had so much of it. I do yeah. have this like frame of reference that brings me comfort that yeah. nothing is permanent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Literally nothing is permanent. So mm-hmm. it's really, you know, to me, I don't know, some people that might be uh, unnerving, but to me, <laughs> to me, it brings me comfort to know that like, you know, when there is a hard time, it is only going to last for so long, whether that's like a minute mm. or a year, whatever it may be. Hmm. That was my uh, mantra during my first labor. This too shall pass. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. like a really, it's, you know. Yeah. But I also agree with you that if you really do understand and know that nothing is permanent, which is, which is a fact of life, right. Mm-hmm. Um, then you're not as prone to like hold on and try to make things permanent. Right. Yeah. I think that people don't want to accept that. It's like a fact of life. The main reason that I am still like in business and that I have an existing business is my willingness to change. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't expect that trait of mine to bleed over into business, but it's honestly been one of the most helpful things. A hundred percent for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Of course. Of course. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to connect with me, please, um, yes. The best ways to do so are to, you can find me on Instagram. So my coaching page is at livingwells underscore. And then all of my photography work and things related to that are at marybeth.wells.photography. And I also have, you know, if anybody wants to move further into introspection and journaling, I know Mm -hmm. we talked about that a couple of times, I do send Mm -hmm. a weekly newsletter. And Um, is that from there? Maybe give a website where people or how can people connect with that? Um, so it's linked on my Instagram. It's linked on, on the living wells on both of them. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, on the living wells, page. on the living wells. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you again, Mary Beth. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Same here. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Mary Beth for her time, story, and insights today. As always, my website, thestoriedrecipe.com, is the place to connect with all my guests, recipes, photography resources, and more about me and my story and the podcast. You can connect with Mary Beth through the show notes, which are right there on thestoriedrecipe.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please send it along to friends and family please leave a five-star rating or review and please make sure you hit that subscribe button. So many great episodes are coming your way this fall and I'm so, so excited to share them. Oh, one more note back to going to the website. We didn't really talk about Mary Beth's recipe, zucchini pancakes at all, but they are delicious and they are over on the website as well. So again, finally, I just want to say a huge thank you to you for tuning in. You listener are why I do this work. You are who enables me to keep doing it. I appreciate every listen and every act of support. And I hope you have a great week, my friends.